money should be in service to life and it needs to be in service to a far more regenerative and distributive economy. So I think this crisis is, is opening up very, very deep questions about the fundamental structures of our economies. And welcome to the fourth episode of What Comes After What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister for Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. Today I'm talking to the brilliant economist Kate Rayworth. Kate is a senior research associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute, where she teaches on the Masters in Environmental Change and Management. She's also Professor of Practice at Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences. Kate will probably be best known to you for her hugely influential book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. That book came out three years ago and proposed a new economic model based on meeting the needs of all within the means of the planet. Kate's ideas have travelled all over the world and helped to shape government policy making. I opened our conversation by asking Kate to explain what she means by donut economics and what it can teach us about our post-pandemic economic recovery. As always, my email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Here's my conversation with Kate Rayworth. Why a donut? I know, look, let's get the obvious thing out of the way. A donut is a ridiculous name. It's sugary, fatty. Some people say, how could this be the symbol of where we want to get to? So I'll Let's just be clear. I like donuts. I'm just... Okay. Well then let me be clear. Don't eat too many of them. Okay. This is the only one that actually turns out to be any good for us. So it's a donut because you know what? Everybody knows what that shape is. A donut with a hole in the middle. We can all see that immediately in our heads. And that means we can all envision what this thing looks like. So I offer it as a compass for human prosperity in the 21st century. Imagine a donut with a hole in the middle. Essentially, we want to leave nobody falling short on the essentials of life in the hole of the donut without the essential resources they need for food and healthcare and housing and political voice and education and transport, all of the essentials that the world's governments have agreed every person has a claim to, to lead a life of opportunity and community. So leave no one falling short in the hole of the donut. But at the same time, we must make sure that collectively we don't overshoot the outer ring of the donut, because there we put so much pressure on this extraordinary, delicately balanced living planet that is our earthly home, that we begin to tip her out of balance and we cause climate breakdown and we acidify the oceans and we create a hole in the ozone layer. And so these are the planetary boundaries, the life-supporting systems of our planet Earth home. So put those two things together. The aim of the donut is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. And it's that juicy donut space in between where everything about a regenerative and distributive 21st century economy lies. That is the possibility. So in reading your book, one of the things I was struck by was you started with the notion of uh, needing an image, needing needing something that we can kind of see in our mind's eye, which in all of the books on sustainable economics, or in fact, any kind of economics, actually, um, I had never, that was the sort of first time I'd sort of thought of it through that lens. There are lots of great theories out there um, 
I'd always, frankly, str- struggled to articulate, you know, when someone says, well, what is a green economy? You know, h- how do I su- su- sum that up? So why, why did you start there? Why did you actually start with the visual rather than, say, some table of numbers, which is where most economists would appear to start. Exactly. And we are told that economics is a science and it's calculative and it's quantitative and it's very serious. And so look for numbers and look for equations. And of course, this intimidates most people. Most people step back and say, oh, I wasn't very good at maths at school. That's not for me. Therefore, I can't understand economics. And that's a disaster because economics is deeply political and part of our lives. So we need to come at it from a different place. I wanted to be an artist when I was young, and I've always loved doodling in the margins of my work and my thinking, drawing little pictures that to me capture uh, what I was thinking about. But I never, I never really thought these were more than doodles. When I first saw the diagram of planetary boundaries drawn up by Earth system scientists, it, and it was a picture, it was a picture of a circle with these big red rays shooting over the edges of the circle, symbolizing the overshoot. I had a visceral reaction in my body. And I, I, without understanding quite what was happening, it was the picture that I had always wanted that would embody the understanding I didn't quite yet, I wasn't quite yet able to articulate of the challenge that economics was never never considered to be happening within a living planet. And suddenly, bam, on the page before us was the visual extent to which we were overshooting the planet. So I wanted to draw on top of that. And I very cheekily doodled on top of this fantastic scientific diagram. And the circle turned into a donut. We published that as a discussion paper by Oxfam in 2012, just a discussion paper on the side. But this picture immediately had massive resonance. And that was for me, the first wake up of Wow, this is this thing is flying around the world. People were very quickly saying to me, "Oh, are you the donut lady?" And you think, "Wow, what, 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 how did this happen?" And that started me thinking much more seriously about visual culture and the power of visual framing. I started reading up on it. Did you know that over half of the nerve fibers in our brains are connected to our eyesight? So our eyes no, are pattern spotters. I right? did not know that. Our eyes are pattern spotters, and that's why we see dogs in the clouds and people in the shadows, why we see shapes in the stars. We're continually trying to make visual sense of things. So let's give our eyes something to make sense of. And when I realized the power of the donut diagram, I thought, well, hang on a minute. When I was studying economics, there were lots of diagrams in the book. And like most people, I thought they were sort of illustrations of the main concepts. But maybe what if they were actually doing the main work? What if they were the most influential thing on the page? And I went back to the books. And of course, the first one you see is supply and demand, mm. this crisscross of lines, which means on day one, we think that economics is the market. And at the center of our vision is price, is the, apparently is the metric by which to do economics. And the central concept is equilibrium. Well, I don't think any of those things are true. I don't think the economy is the market. That's just one part of it. I don't think price is the most powerful and relevant metric for the 21st century. And I definitely don't think economies operate in equilibria. I mean, that is something we have definitely learned. So we need to redraw the diagrams. And then it became a huge adventure. And I realized I could be an artist and an economist at the same time. Well, that's living the dream. That is. And I, I have to tell you something that connecting me to your country, one of the most honoring and thrilling things that's happened in the last six months is that 
two people from the Maori community in your country have seen the donut and created Maori reinterpretations of it. So Johnny Freeland, who's based in the Auckland area, drew a beautiful interpretation with the inner circle as Mother Earth and the outer circle as Father Sky. And then Taina Bausundain, very recently, she drew a reinterpretation and said it shouldn't be a closed circle, it should be part of a spiral and put the earth in the center and humanity at the outside and talked about the energy. I mean, to me, this was, yeah, the energy and, and the need for the living world to gain some of the energy because we need to restore her. This is amazing because this is culture speaking to each other visually. And perhaps we can connect visually faster than we can sometimes connect with words. So it's a beautiful way of building bridges that we can start to lean into each other's worldviews through image. So there's been a tremendous uh, reception of this. Um, I get emails pretty much every day from people uh, both in New Zealand and around the world who are sort of in my kind of crowd, if you like, saying, have you read this? Have you seen this? Why aren't we running everything this way um and and it's always you know i feel a little <laughs> smug to go yes yes i have actually. <laughs> yes, I um, but what i'm curious about is how do you translate that from a sort of a you know an economic mental model to uh reality to to policy to how, how is it is there an applied donut anywhere <laughs> well yes uh, i think your country is part of leading that charge. So one of the first things you need to do is change the goal from pursuing endless growth, no matter how rich a nation already is, the idea that its success lies in yet more growth and that will be the primary metric. We need to move from that to saying, actually, our success lies in our well-being and it's the well-being of the people of this place and it's the well-being of the living world here and the whole living world in which we're embedded. And so, of course, Aotearoa New Zealand has adopted well-being economics um, as part of one of the few governments in the world, along with Iceland and Scotland, saying, actually, let's put a new value at the heart of our politics. That is so powerful, because if you think of uh, systems thinking, Donella Meadows, one of the mother thinkers of systems thinking, she says, if you want to change a system, you need to go to one of the very high leverage points. And quite near the top of the leverage points is to change the goal of the system. Once you've done that, a lot of other things follow. So that's a first step. Then you have to change the dynamics of the system to start taking us towards that goal. And the way I talk about donut economics is that we need to create economies that stop being degenerative by design and start to become regenerative by design and stop being divisive by design, driving the returns of the economic value into the hands of a 1% and become distributive by design. So regenerative design, that's circular economy. We need to places, cities, nations that put circular design, regenerating through agriculture, through industry, through lifestyles at the heart of their policies. Um, two places come to my mind right now. One, the nation of Costa Rica. There's an initiative just been launched there called Regenerate Costa Rica. They're using the donut as their driving concept and their metric as to whether or not they're moving towards this. I secretly think that they are going to succeed in their goal of becoming one of the world's first regenerative nations, and they will soon rename themselves Costa Regenerica, but that's <laughs> not official yet. Um, 
And I mean, that's just waiting to happen, isn't it? Well, they, I mean, Costa Rica have been on an extraordinary journey mm. since the end of their civil war in the 1980s. And mm-hmm. they have, uh, you know, I think it's sort of often overlooked. And, and, and here in New Zealand, we often look to the northern European countries mm-hmm. and the Scandinavian countries and so on, because they're sort of more analogous to our own economy and population size and so on. Uh, and and you know, there's some kind of shared history in terms of policy and so on. But actually, from what I know, from what I understand of Costa Rica, over the course of must be almost 30 years, they have done some extraordinary things like get rid of a standing army in Central America where, you know, that's generally not the done thing, Uh, put a huge amount of effort into um, sort of what I would describe as true ecotourism, not just tourism Mm -hmm. looking at nature, but uh, actual regenerative tourism um, and getting people really in touch with that, um, working out the economics of afforestation, actually planting trees rather than cutting them down and yes. replacing them with, you know, crops or so, or whatever. I, I, you know, so I, I guess what I'm wondering is, did did your piece of work kind of land in their lap? Yes, exactly they, the right time. Yes, so and and I think. With the pickup of the concept of the donut in many places, people are already doing this. It's not that they find the donut and, then, and say, oh, we therefore should start doing these things. They are already doing these things. And it's, again, a visual concept that acts as an umbrella, uh, a framework that they say everything we are already doing and already leaning towards is represented and makes sense in this framework. And now I can more clearly articulate it to other people. So, uh, as well as the ecological restoration that you just described of Costa Rica. I mean, another outstanding thing about that country is that on a far, far lower income per capita than all high income countries, they have outstanding healthcare, far more equitable nation, far more better life outcomes for the vast majority of the population. They show that investing in universal public services and health and in education, you can achieve the fundamentals of well-being and that's really important because, as you said, nations like yours often look to, say, the Scandinavian countries. But by the way, they're massively in overshoot on planetary boundaries. Costa Rica, actually, if we downscale the donut to national levels, which some brilliant researchers at Leeds University have done, they've got a wonderful website called goodlife.leeds.ac.uk. You can go there and find your country and see where your country's doing, how your country's doing on social foundations and planetary boundaries. Costa Rica is, to my view, the country in the world that is closest to meeting the social foundation for everyone. It's closest to meeting the social foundation for everyone, while nearly being within planetary boundaries. So it's the country that I would hold up as an example of hope that we could possibly live in the donut because they're nearly doing it. So there's two things about that. One of of which is that, of course, uh, we are all going to be living in smaller economies than we had two months ago uh, due to the epidemic. Um, you know, there's a huge contraction in the New Zealand economy. There's huge contractions in, you know, pretty much every economy around the world, some more than others. And our assessment is that we haven't seen the worst of it yet. Um, and and it's going to take quite an effort to get through that. That, of mm-hmm. course, is then going to lead to, a, a, I guess, an even greater hankering for economic growth because, you know, how do we get back to that sort of very human instinct? I just want things to go back to the way that the way that it was, back to normal, please. Um, even though I 
I know that back to normal wasn't actually quite, it wasn't perfect. Um, so I'm, so I'm interested in, in that. The, the other bit about what you're talking about there is the social foundation. And I know, you know, you were saying that the planetary boundaries was a framework from the, I think, was it the World Resources Institute or the Stockholm Institute? No, the I think Stock, it's from the Stockholm, Stockholm Resilience Centre. Yes, who, who, who sort of had framed that up a while ago. Mm, just a decade. And that's a fascinating thing in itself. 2009, that is the first year huh. that about 30 Earth System scientists came together. Johan Rockström of the Stockholm Resilience Centre, Will Steffen in Australia, um, and many others. And only in 2009 was it the first rendition of Earth system scientists saying, we think these are the nine life-supporting systems of our planet. I mean, this science is so young. We're only just beginning to understand what keeps our Mother Earth alive as we know we are destroying those. And it's extraordinary that we're only just beginning to understand this. Yeah, it's funny because it, I don't know, it, 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 maybe a decade is a long time, but it feel, feels feels like it's been around longer than that. Um, we, where did where did the social foundation come from? Because when, in my experience, the partially because it's based on physical sciences, in some ways the ecological boundaries are actually easier to establish. You know, it's it's kind of physics and chemistry at one level. Yes, uh, social stuff is a lot harder, um, much more values laden, um, and so a sense of what the kind of boundaries are. Uh, in in any way that's analogous to the ecological uh, stocks mm-hmm. and flows is is really hard mm-hmm. and and I and I think people have my sense is that that that's an area that's that's been struggling. So how did you how did you come to the set that you've got there? So that's a great question. So back in 2009, I first saw these planetary boundaries, and I was actually literally sitting at my desk in Oxfam, this big open plan office where people were working to raise money for a drought in the Sahel. Um, uh, there were people campaigning for rights of education and health for all in India. And I knew that we had to put the human story in the middle of this planetary boundary story. And as you just said, so who gets to define the planetary boundaries? Well, let's bring together the best of Earth system science and let's continually assess it and recheck it. So they did it in 2009. They did it again in 2015. And some of the metrics improved and changed and the numbers changed. And we're just at the beginning of a journey of measuring this. So on one hand, the social foundation seems much harder because we can't turn to a group of scientists in the same way. But actually, we have a collective agreement and conversation about this. And it's been going on much longer. Go all the way back to post-World War II, 1948. Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is the world governments coming together as representatives of the world community, agreeing on what every person has a claim to, and that's what human rights are. Then they got reiterated or restated in 2000 as the Millennium Development Goals. They got restated again in 2015 as the Sustainable Development Goals. So I crowdsourced the center of the donut from the Sustainable Development Goals because and because it meant it includes food and water and healthcare and education and housing and transport and political voice and gender equality and peace and justice. And the power of that is that when I was invited to present this at the UN General Assembly, I could say to the world's governments, well, the outside of the donut comes from the world's leading earth system scientists and the inside of the donut comes from you. These are your values. 
that you claim that every person in the world has the right to meet every single one of these. Now, that's the power of it, that it's been internationally agreed. That doesn't mean it's correct or complete. For example, the Sustainable Development Goals highlight gender equality as a right. It doesn't, they don't highlight racial equality, and I think it should be there. The Sustainable Development Goals are actually very individually stated, and I think that's a legacy from the human rights in the 1950s and 60s in, in the light of the Cold War, the, the sort of communism versus capitalism. I think there was a, a, an individualistic lean that was written into the evolution of human rights. So they say, do you have enough food and water and housing? But they don't say, do you have community? Do you have culture? And actually, gosh, if there's one thing we're learning now is that we need community. So I, when we downscale the donut, we bring in racial equality and equality of different kinds of identities along with gender equality. We bring in community and culture because these actually matter to people in their day-to-day lives. And so just to add to that, the global donut that we know and, and the, the familiar picture and the one that's in my book, that's, a, that's an image for the world. But when we bring it down to the level of Costa Rica, for example, well, it's for Costa Rica to say, what does it mean for people to thrive in this place? And they can define their own social foundation and they need to accompany the planetary boundaries with their own local ecology. What does it mean for the landscape of our nation, the biome that we live in to thrive? So you could ask that in New Zealand. If we, if we downscale the concept of the donut to New Zealand, I'd say there are four lenses that we look at it through, local and global and social and ecological. So we ask this question, how can New Zealand be, no, let me ask it in the best way. How can Aotearoa New Zealand be a home to thriving people in a thriving place while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet. So the thriving people, what does that mean? Well, it's the people of Aotearoa New Zealand to define what it means for yourselves to thrive. And you've got an amazing opportunity of bringing together the Maori culture, uh, bringing the wisdom from that. And I, I, I honestly can tell you the rest of the world looks on in envy that you have some deep wisdom to turn to wisdom of your place. So what does it mean for the people of this place to thrive? And what does it mean for us, for this, what, what does it mean for this place to thrive? What is the land that is called Aotearoa New Zealand? What is this biome? How does nature thrive here? What's her genius here? And what if the cities in your nation could thrive just like the wildland next door, sequester as much carbon dioxide, store as much groundwater after rain, house as much biodiversity, cool the air like the forests do from the treetops to the forest floor? How could your cities match nature's performance next door? So to me, those two to go together and they are high local aspiration, thriving people in a thriving place, wonderful life here. But we have to set that in the context of global responsibility because every nation is embedded in a web of relationships of history, We've got colonial history. We've got modern day global supply chains. And that means we know we have impacts on people worldwide. So who grew the food that we eat? Who made the electronics and stitched our clothes and created the building materials? What are the labor conditions in all of those supply chains? What are the investment impacts of our firms and our, our banks that they're making overseas? So you can go in a deep context of global impacts on people. And then the fourth area, crucial, what's our impact on the whole planet? Not just our local pollution and our local resource use, but our global impact. So not just who made my 
smartphone and who, how much were they paid when they assembled it? What was the ecological footprint of my smartphone? All the coltan that comes from mines in the Congo, the, the CO2 that was emitted as it was produced and as it was shipped. So we need to look at every nation through these four lenses. And that's what we've done actually with the city of Amsterdam. So they were the first city to publish uh, a local donut for the city of Amsterdam. And we've looked at it through these four lenses. So it talks about what does it mean to thrive in this place. And by the way, there's a lot of people who can't afford um, housing in Amsterdam because so many people internationally want to buy a patch of Amsterdam. It's becoming unaffordable. I think that's a familiar story in many places. The local ecology, how is it thriving? How can we create more green roofs? How can we um, cool the city on hot days? Let's go to our global ecological footprint. Amsterdam, like all high-income cities, is massively over on on climate change, on resource use. They've got a plan to be a circular city by 2050, 100% circular. They've got a plan to have no fossil fuel cars in the city in 10 years' time. No fossil fuel cars. I mean, that's, that's real ambition. And now let's move to our impact on people worldwide. Part of Amsterdam's portrait is the fact that the port of Amsterdam is importing cocoa from cocoa plantations in West Africa, where we know people are working sometimes under modern slavery conditions. That's part of the city's portrait. And it's not pretty, but it's real. And we have to face up to these dark side of globalization and the dark side of a good life in a high income country can mean that we are degrading people's lives and degrading the planet. And that has to be transformed. It's not easy, but actually these are real issues for every city, for every nation. And I fully respect the ones that actually step up and say, yep, we're going to put this on the table and we're going to have this conversation because this is a really 21st century conversation. I'm glad that you raised Amsterdam, actually, because I'm fascinated by it. Uh, the fact, as you say, that it's incredibly ambitious um, and and so, sort of has gone boots and all in, into this. I sort of feel like we're dipping our toe in the waters um, don't leave your boots behind, James. You're going to need them. <laughs> um, and and no, I am one for mixing metaphors. By the way, if you hadn't noticed, <laughs> I had noticed. Uh, <laughs> I um, and even that meets with resistance. So, how how did it come about in Amsterdam? That you know the 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 sort of. I mean, it's not like there isn't political diversity of opinion mm. uh, in the Netherlands. Um, and and it is very sophisticated and a very wealthy country. Um, how did it come to be that this city has adopted this so fully? Well, I would love to know. You know, I would love to know where was the first conversation in the government that they said, we think we're going to use this donut as a policy tool. Um, because I wasn't there when it first began. Obviously, I, I only get pulled in when someone calls me and says, would you come and run a workshop? But if I reflect on Amsterdam, first, it's a place that loves to be a city of firsts, right? I mean, capitalism was practically invented in Amsterdam. So come on, let's reinvent. <laughs> let's invent the next version here too. Um, they've got high ambition on circular economy. They've got high ambition on getting fossil fuels out of the city. They are a cycle-loving city, and they know that there are really great alternatives to getting in your car if you want to get around your city. And again, the donut offers a frame that brings these things together and says, by the way, don't just treat these as green issues. This is about society as well. This is about housing and transport and social equity and incomes and jobs. And we need to deal with all of these together. I mean, in a way, I could say, why on earth haven't more places 
cottoned on to this since the turn of the century, because this century has begun. I mean, let's just think back. It's what, 20 years. We began with financial meltdown, 2008, whacked every city and every nation. Then we remembered that we're actually in the middle of climate breakdown that's been going on for decades. And now we're beginning to feel it very forcefully. And now on top of this, we've got COVID lockdown. So any mayor, and I often say, you know, you want to meet a a 21st century economist, go meet a mayor. Because a city is the home to all the complexity of modern life. You cannot ignore the people and their needs. You cannot ignore the environment. You cannot ignore the financial system and the economy. These things come together. It's a complex system. And any policymaker who tries to solve them one at a time is going to find themselves ricocheting off to the next crisis and actually inadvertently worsening one thing while trying to solve another. It's not going to work. So I think the policymakers in Amsterdam cottoned onto this quite fast and said, we need a framework actually that holds all of this together. And I think it's helped by the fact that there are a lot of organizations, there are universities, there are change makers, community activists, um, entrepreneurs, even the government themselves who in Amsterdam had started using the donut as a concept. Uh, it, it gained currency there. And so once you've got change makers across different sectors of a city already using it, already playfully bringing it into their conversation, you realize an idea starts to have currency. It may all go back to the fact that when my book first came out in Dutch at the beginning of 2008, a very well-known Dutch economist, quite mainstream, let me say, he'd written his sort of best reads of 2017. And he said, best reads of 2017 is this book and this book and this book. And then he added, and do not read Donut Economics. It is the most intellectually appalling book I have ever read. And of course, a lot of people thought, oh, what's, what's creating such friction here? And started reading it. And so when I arrived in the Netherlands, there was all these sort of fisticuffs going on between the absolute transformationers and the old guard who couldn't stand it. And so it, it, it got off to a, a massive start because of, uh, as you said, you know, diverse views and, and people were debating over it fiercely. So it landed with a punch in the city. And it's fantastic that they've picked it up because it's having massive inspiration around the world. When I but they launched the city report on the 8th of April, I blogged about it that day. And towards the end of my blog, I said, if you're interested in using this method of downscaling the donut to your place, be it a neighborhood or a nation, please just fill in this quick form. We've had over 280 responses. And I have to say quite a few of them from Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is quite exciting. So there is momentum building up. People saying, I want to do it in my street. I want to do it for my nation. I want to do it for my city. I want my city councillors to do this. Or even a city council writing to us saying, we really want to do this. So Amsterdam is inspiring the world. And I want to bring this back again to your nation because sometimes when I chat with people from New Zealand or I see sort of chat on Twitter, there can be a, a sort of, well, we're sort of at the other end of the planet and we're only very small. So there can be a sort of little exceptionalism that surely we don't really have to do anything because we're really small and we're very far away and, you know, maybe no one will notice. Guys, we notice. We are looking to you. One, you have got well-being economics. You've got one of the prime ministers that everybody is really envying you having right now because it's somebody who's leading with integrity and vision. So we really notice you. Two, Earth notice us all. It doesn't matter where we are on the planet. Carbon emissions are carbon emissions and they raise the temperature of our planet. So we all have to act. And three, if you can inspire, and I sincerely think your country is at the top of many people's list of who are the global inspirations you're looking to. 
wherever you're looking to for breakthrough, you're up there. So guys, we're watching. Please keep leading. So no pressure is what you're saying. Lots of pressure. Come on. <laughs> no, it's true. Look, I, I have this argument with people who, because that, that you, know, you know, obviously in my role uh, as Minister for Climate Change, the, you know, meet lots of people who, who say exactly that. Look, you know, New Zealand's emissions are tiny. We're 0.017% of, you know, the global total. Surely um, we can just kind of go on with our lives. And actually it's the US and China and India and Europe and so on who need to do all the work. And my response is, is this, well, our population is the same as Los Angeles City. So are you suggesting that Los mm-hmm. Angeles City should just go about its business normally and not try and reduce their emissions? And then if Los Angeles doesn't have to, what about New York? There we go. Um, and, and yeah, the, it's, I, I, I just find it tremendously frustrating, but it, you know, <laughs> it's just one of the things that we, that we, that well, we have Well, I would invite people who actually make that argument to go tell it to a community in Bangladesh or in, uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Go and, go and tell people in the world who actually live off a fraction of the incomes that people like you and me live off that we don't really need to change our lifestyles because it's really not having an impact. I mean, the, the, it's just morally completely unacceptable that we should think, well, I'm tiny, so I can be sort of exclusive. You know, I, I'm tiny, therefore I can live an extremely high impact life. It has massive resonance around the world. And we, we continue, we perpetuate uh, consumption patterns. We perpetuate fossil fuel dependency and we perpetuate the expectations of a lifestyle that doesn't fit in the 21st century. Can we turn now to the post-pandemic economic recovery that is on everybody's minds right now? Um, governments around the world, including my own, uh, are pouring tens of billions of dollars and about to pour tens of billions of dollars more into resuscitating their economies. You know, we've shut down entire economies. We're now bringing them back. Um, Some sectors will be fine, maybe, you know, marginally reduced. Uh, Some sectors will vanish. So tourism, for example, in New Zealand makes up about or made up a month ago, 30% of our foreign exchange earnings. um, And that's down to nil. Um, and so, and it also is one of the largest employers uh, in the country. Um, so that's a lot of people without without work, and uh, a very big hit on our on our earnings and how we go about the, you know, kind of being able to afford iPads and so on. I'm interested in what your thoughts are about how we rebuild our economies because, you know, you started off in a place that. You know, my fellow Greens and I have been talking about for a long time, which is the limits of growth and and so on. Uh, but this isn't the way that we were thinking of making the transition. You know, this this is not the way to reduce your emissions, although emissions are down. Um, how do we go about rebuilding the economy in a way that uh, kind of people feel, you know, that they're getting a quality of life? Um, that they've got, you know, good work, um, a place over their heads, able mm. to feed themselves and their families. Uh, that's kind of sense of security um, that their retirement savings are going to be worth something by the time they have to use them. Um, but also to do so in a way that kind of lives within the constraints of the donut that you're describing. Mm. So let me say the obvious that like everyone, 
I'm in new territory here and I claim no special answers. I think it's really appropriate for us all to be both incredibly humble at this time because this is an unprecedented policy situation, but also to be extraordinarily ambitious uh, because we know that this we know that there are transformations that need to be made that we already knew we must make. Right? We, the world has been on track for three degrees of global heating. We just lived through the we just lived through the five hottest years on record. We have seen the number of billionaires in the world double in the last decade, from a thousand to two thousand, while the number of people in the world going hungry every day is growing again. So we don't want to go back to normal, back to where we were. I don't even think we want to recover that old economy. We need to renew our societies and our relationship with the rest of the living world through economic transformation. And as you just said, no one imagined it or planned it to come this way. And here it is. I was on a call with some senior policymakers in European Commission recently saying, look, we know that we have to invest billions in this COVID green recovery. And it has to be green because by the time we've invested in this recovery, we'll be maxed out. We can't then say, okay, now we've done that bit. Let's start the green transformation. That's it. This is it. This is the chance. And we have to make that transformation that we already knew we needed to economies that are far more regenerative, working with and within the cycles of the living world. Is there work to be done? Yes, there's lots of work to be done there. And that means there's lots of jobs. Where there is work to be done, we can create jobs in renewing and refurbishing and regenerating our lands and creating economies that are far more circular, using materials again and again, far more collectively, more carefully, more creatively. That's an extraordinary opportunity for every country. We need economies that are far more distributive. And of course, what, what this pandemic has done is forced a lockdown of day-to-day economic activity. So it's forced a lockdown in so many countries of people's daily incomes. And it's separated the, the economy of those who live off their monthly income from those who live off rent and continually extract rent because they own the building, because they own the land, because as a bank, they own the power to create money. And I think it's really highlighted the very bizarre design that we have in our economies of this rentier economy that through through the sheer power of ownership, people and institutions have a claim of continual rent. And that's why we need a rent freeze, a rent break, and actually a rent, deep rent reconsideration and a deep question about ownership. Who owns the land? And why do they get the right to extract a rent from it, even in times of crisis? Who owns the power to create money? And why have they been given that power to create money? And actually, money should be in service to life. And it needs to be in service to a far more regenerative and distributive economy. So I think this crisis is is opening up very, very deep questions about the fundamental structures of our economies. Now, to come back to what can this mean in the future of people's lives? You mentioned earlier, there's desperate need for economic growth. There is definitely a desperate need for economies to 
begin to grow again to come back, but we shouldn't aim for growth itself. What we most importantly need is livelihoods, right? That's what has been shut down. That's what makes families vulnerable. And so we should aim to create livelihoods rather than create growth in the hope that that will create livelihoods because we know those two things have come apart massively. So policies that aim for livelihoods first, we need, we now understand more deeply that we need care. We need to care for each other and we need to invest in health. We need to care for the living planet. There is work to be done there. Some, some old industries that were from the 20th century and that have hung on and have amazing power because they have vested interests, because they've earned so much money, they lobby to survive. They need to let go and leave. The, the, the oil belongs under the ground in the 21st century. We need to move to new forms of energy. And your country, like mine, is blessed with rocky coastlines and waves and wind. So come on, let's harness this incredible endowment of renewable energy and sunshine. Let's invest in creating the jobs that start taking us now where we already knew we wanted to go. That doesn't solve everything. And I'm, again, it's not for me to say how New Zealand should figure this out. It's a national conversation that you know your own industries, you know your own opportunities. And, and the tourism, depend, both the tourism dependency and the shutdown is incredibly hard because that's such a dramatic loss of income. Uh, and, and that will come back. You know, there will be a return of visitors in a different way, I'm sure. And can you turn that to creating the kind of visitors that you want as you were recognizing that Costa Rica has done so well in the past. So for me, the dynamics are how do we create livelihoods? There is work to be done in, cre in creating an economy that is far more regenerative. There is work to be done in creating an economy that is far more distributive and that invests in the fundamental well-being of all people. And it's tough. And we need the vision and conviction to turn our economies there now. I heard you say something recently uh the economic shutdown is teaching us the difference between the productive economy and the extractive economy. Is that what you meant by sort of, you know, people who kind of work for a living versus yes, living Yes, that's exactly what I mean. So the productive economy being people who, who, who receive an income because they produced a product or a service, they produced food in a cafe, or they provided music lessons for kids in schools, or they run an IT service, or they, you know, uh, wrote, produced a, a newspaper, something that a good or a service, and they have to produce it again and again. They have to generate that income every month. And then there's the extractive part of the economy in which people earn an income, not because they produced something, but because they own something. And that's when we come to this question of who owns the land and who owns the buildings and who owns the data and who owns the power to create money and who owns the technology. And how did they come to own it? And now, <clears throat> and now we're deep into the story of history and colonialism and it's bringing up deep questions. But we need to ask those questions because that sheer ownership of those resources today is securing people without even having to work that income. And I think it reveals something um, about the deep design of our economies. If we want to live on a, if we want to live within a regenerative economy that is part of a regenerative living world, does it make sense to have a whole sector of the economy that extracts by design, and that's how it accumulates into the hands of very few people? So I would like to see a deep reflection on the design of money, and instead of saying money 
is generating money is generating money and it's in service to itself. Actually, we need money that's designed in service to life. How can finance and banking be designed to invest in regeneration and to invest in distributive design? And there are some banks internationally that are part of a global movement for banking on values that are redesigning what money means. But there are far too many banks and far too many financial institutions that are still designed to do the old style extraction. One of the things that has struck us here is that the people who we classed as essential workers because they ensured that those of us who were locked up for four weeks got to eat. Uh, the vast majority of them are on minimum wage or not much north of that. Um, and uh, the rest of us <laughs> who were not classed as essential workers um, were really at their um, disposal. Uh, and so we've we've had this argument for a while now about raising the minimum wage. And so one thing that we've done in this country is we were increasing the minimum wage by a dollar a year over a three-year period. And as it happens, uh, one of the increases occurred in April, beginning of April, so smack in the middle of our lockdown. Um, and um, I was quite pleased that uh, by the time we got to that point, it wasn't really an arguing point, but but it had been only a couple of weeks before. And that really struck me that that gives you a sense of revealed values, actually. Um, and uh, are, are, are the people who we consider utterly essential to our ongoing survival, um, why is it that we would pass over uh, an additional dollar an hour? Um, given especially some of the other conditions that you're talking about, like, as you say, unaffordable rents, because we also have a housing crisis here and an affordability crisis and, and so on. And most of these people live in overcrowded, um, cold, drafty, unhealthy homes and so on. So uh, I, I was kind of fascinated by um, what that revealed about uh, about us as a, as a country. Uh, I'm still sort of feeling my way through thinking about what we do about that next. How do we convert that revelation into uh, something useful yeah. right, rather than just something that we say on Twitter? Oh, isn't it, you know, striking. Yeah. Yes. And so I think what it reveals for us is that the market tends to pay what it can rather than what it should. And, in times of crisis, we really do discover who we depend upon and the services we depend upon. And, you know, we, we all know if from times in our own personal life that when we lose our good health, when we're ill, nothing matters as much as getting your health back. It is literally priceless. And yet it's so easy once you get your health back to sort of forget how essential that was. And I think that's what society tends to do. And then we're reminded collectively when we find ourselves in the middle of crisis, the extraordinary public service of people who choose to go into public service in healthcare, in education, uh, and then literally being on the front line of, of personal risk in this crisis. So I think it's really important to think of salaries of um, essential workers. And I'm going to talk at the moment, particularly about health and education. This is not public spending. This is public investment. I mean, I live in Oxford, which 
like many cities, is, is a relatively expensive city and very difficult for key workers to live in. And my kids go to the local state school. It's so hard for their brilliant teachers to even afford to live in the city and to teach here. Why do we massively underinvest in the people who we know are actually building the health and education capacity of the next generation and looking after the health needs of all of us. This is our fundamental wealth. It, it lies in our own health and well-being. And yet the, the people who provide these services are often paid as little as possible. It's, it's insane. And moments like this make us see that and understand that. And then we see the people who are supply, who are working in delivery services, packing in supermarkets. Again, they're paid absolute minimum wage. And yet they're the ones who are still coming to work at this time. So it really makes us question who is key? What should people be paid? And therefore, what should be a decent minimum wage, which by the way, gets reinvested in our economies because you know, in Seattle, famously, when they introduced a $15 minimum wage, people said, well, no one will be able to afford to go to restaurants anymore. And if the waitress is being paid $15, well, guess what? The waitresses could start going to restaurants. So actually, the money comes back and is reinvested. So this is an amazing opportunity to, again, stand back from what we thought was normal and stand back from the very um, high-speed economies that we had that didn't look down, didn't notice the bin men, didn't notice the delivery trucks, didn't notice the doctors and nurses and the teachers who were sort of struggling to get by. And suddenly they're actually at the forefront. They're the only people who are allowed out in my country because they're the only people we truly need. And every Thursday night, the UK is stepping onto our doorsteps at 8 p.m. and applauding the nurses and applauding the NHS and all the key workers. And they say, respectfully say, thank you very much. But actually, applause is lovely, but it would be great just to be paid properly and to be respected. So the National Health Service in the UK has been cut and cut and cut. And this is what happens. We find we don't have the protective equipment. We don't have the capacity. We cannot plan economies and run economies only for the sunny heydays that uh, people imagine. We will hit crises. We are vulnerable to crises. And we need to plan for resilience. And that means employing people, having it means having a plan for a pandemic. It means actually uh, investing in renewing the lands of your country to make the land more resilient. It means investing in the fundamentals of human well-being. And if we want to know what they are, look in the social foundation of the donut. They're all there. Can I ask you about the role of capital in all of this? So, you know, a lot of what you've been talking about is the distinction between people who earn versus people who own. Um, and, you know, this recovery package in New Zealand, in the UK, everywhere is going to be astonishing <laughs> in its size. Uh, and one thing that I've been saying recently is we are essentially borrowing that money off our children and grandchildren, right? It's going to take decades to repay. Um, we also are imposing a cost on those very same people in the form of the need to adapt to the effects of climate change if we don't stop it. Therefore, we have an economic and a moral duty to invest that money that we're spending of theirs today uh, getting ourselves through this crisis in a way that um, you know resolves those kind of long-term challenges and avoids that cost for them. And you were talking before about you know money that's in service to life. What I'm trying to reconcile is 
how how you go about putting something together of this scale that you know you know it, it is going to take a vast amount of capital um public and private do that in a way that does all the things that it needs to do that we've been talking about but kind of meets your standard for money that's in service to life so I agree it's crucial to take the long view and think about our grandchildren and what they'll ask us and what we did and the decisions we made that have affected them. I do profoundly believe the greatest thing they would blame us for was to destabilize the climate and the life-supporting systems of our planet rather than say, but you gave us public debt. I mean, that's at least one thing that you can write off, right? Money is an invention. It's created, it's designed. We invented it and we can reinvent it and redesign it. And nations that have their own sovereign currency, like yours, like mine, have the ability to create money into existence. If, if again, if there's work to be done and there are people to do that work, money can be created into existence to make that happen. Much, much harder if you're part of a larger community like in, in the European Union, sharing a euro and what one country needs is different from what another country needs and you don't have control over the currency like the European Central Bank. In your own nation, uh, people call it modern monetary theory. We can create money to into existence and it doesn't become a public debt that the children will have to pay off. Spain is saying we're going to just live with permanent debt. Other places might say we're going to write off debt, a debt jubilee. That's a, a deep cultural norm, actually, in many societies. At some point, the debt is written off. Money is a design, and it actually, uh, credit means I trust. So we can redesign money. And the reason I'm saying it, this is if there's a choice between the inheritance of the future in terms of the laws of the living earth and the things we can't change, like the second law of thermodynamics and the fact that when we enwrap our planet in carbon dioxide, she heats up. We can't change that. So let's make sure we get that inheritance right. We can change the design of money. We can have debt write-offs and write-downs. Governments, uh, and one thing this pandemic is showing us really is that, wow, money comes, where does the money suddenly come from when we've been told for decades that you have to have austerity, there's no more money, it's not possible. And suddenly when it's needed, it happens. And also suddenly when it's needed, there's no homeless people on the street. And, uh, you know, the, Things can happen overnight. So it reveals the, what is changeable, what can be redesigned, what can be made to happen. So let's create that money, but spend it in ways that take us towards the future that our children will thank us for, because they will focus on the stability of Earth's life-supporting systems rather than on public budgets. They may well come along, say, hey, we've got... Uh, <laughs> we've got all sorts of uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, we, we know how to redesign money. We've got rid of that problem. You guys couldn't see it. We've seen it. We've, we've figured that out. But second law of thermodynamics, you know, that doesn't change one generation to the next. So please keep your long eye on that one. You mentioned uh, mo modern monetary theory. Uh, can you explain that for someone who hasn't heard the phrase before? So. It sounds like it's a new thing. It's not a new thing. It's an older thing. I didn't think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, sometimes um, Margaret Thatcher, 
UK prime minister from the 1980s, she liked to say, a nation should be like a household. You should live within your means. You shouldn't go into debt, right? And, and sort of, you know, households don't go into debt. Households live within their means. And, and, and a good household think, oh, yes, no, that sounds sensible. So we shouldn't go into debt. Well, actually, first of all, that's not true. Households absolutely go into debt. One, they take out a mortgage to own a house. And two, they very often invest in their children's education because they know that by taking that debt, if you're investing it in your child's education, your child is creating the capacity to repay it. So it doesn't become this burden. Your child doesn't turn around and say, why did you take that debt? Your child has the education that enables you to repay it. So it's really important not to get into the metaphor of the household is like, or the economy is like a household. But secondly, the idea that we create debt and then it sits there and back to our extractive economy, it accumulates rent, it accumulates interest. Um, that's a design as well. Why don't we have money that's actually zero interest or even money that loses value over time as it sits there? So many things we could reinvent with money. But if there is work to be done, so if you don't have an economy of full employment, if there are people available to do work and there is work to be done, a government can create money. And this is what they did through quantitative easing. You can create money, spend it into the economy, and the economy absorbs it and turns it into productive activity. And that helps pay itself off. So it doesn't become like this saddling debt sitting under us. But without inflation, because that's always been the, the kind of the critique of quantitative easing is that it's inflationary. Well, that's the, so that's the point about if you already have full employment and you put more money into the system, then there's a risk it'll become inflationary because there's no um, capacity for the economy to take that up in new productive activity. But if you don't have full employment, then you put the money into the economy and lots of people can get back into productive, engaged activity. And we definitely don't have full employment right now. I've taken up quite a lot of your time, so I think we should probably wrap it up um, okay. in, in a minute. Um, I wanted, you, you, One of the things that you've talked about a number of times, you've mentioned the word resilience, um, which is a, a word that's been floating around now uh, for, for a while um, and seems to be the new sustainability. You know, it's the word that's kind of taken over from sustainability in some ways. You say that there are two kinds of resilience. Mm -hmm. Uh, what you call sort of deal with it uh, resilience, like at a personal level, just kind of soak it up, mm -hmm. be, be strong so that you can deal with it. Um, and then design for it resilience, which is more kind of a systems view. And is there a balance between those two to be designed? Um, and how would you do, develop a, a pandemic response package that designed for resilience? Oh, yeah. Great question. So I, so I teach at uh, Oxford University on a course on environmental change and management. And one of the core concepts we teach there is about resilience in socio-ecological systems. That sounds very fancy. But what it means is in the relationship between people and the rest of nature, how can we avoid sudden shocks and tipping points and collapse? How can we thrive and keep on thrumming? And so the word resilience ha is used a lot um, in those circles. And suddenly you just hear it popping up 
in political conversation, on the news, in public debate. So it's been really striking to hear it and then listening to the different ways in which it's used. And so I said, yes, I think there's, I'm hearing it used in two different ways. And the first way is, as I call it, deal for it, deal with it, resilience. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson went on television in January or February at the beginning of this pandemic in the UK. And he said, well, we're going to sort of let the virus sort of roll like a wave through the country and we'll sort of take it on the chin. That is what I call deal with it resilience. People, this is coming at you, but just sort of, you know, take a hit, be a good chap. I mean, that's, that's, well, that's absurd. And by the way, my nation now has the second highest death rate in the world because of that partly because of that, because of very late response. The idea that there are shocks coming at us, people. There's financial shocks, there's climate shocks, there's health pandemic shocks. Just take it on the chin, sort of be a tough chap. Impossible. Because all the pressure of coping is pushed back onto communities. It's pushed onto families. It's particularly pushed as caring work onto women and parents who are trying to hold down a job at the same time and find themselves breaking. We've seen domestic violence rocketing up in so many countries. And that is what it looks like when you tell people to, to deal with it and be resilient themselves. What we need is something very different. I call it design for it resilience because we're not saying you've got to be resilient at the level of your household, no matter what shocks are coming at us. We say, actually, we need to take a holistic view of humanity and the rest of the living world. And that's where we need to be resilient. So number one, let's pull back within the planetary boundaries. Let's keep a stable climate because if we can stop dramatic climate change, that is the number one biggest favor we can do to ourselves to build resilience so that we don't have to respond to crisis after crisis, to fire after flood. Let's be resilient in terms of investing in healthcare, investing in global initiatives, investing in preparation for pandemics. Let's design for this because we know it's going to happen again. And we've been warned by for decades by healthcare professionals that it's not if, it's when. And by the way, the when is now. And were we prepared? No, because we didn't internationally actually invest in designing for this resilience. And let's be resilient as economies and financially. How do you do that? By not focusing on endless growth, because actually nothing in nature grows forever. Things eventually will collapse. And that's not resilient. Invest in well-being. Invest in health, which lies in balance in our own bodies and in our economies and the living planet. So that's designed for it resilience. So for me, to get away from the deal with it resilience, which is failing, to the design for it resilience, take a step back, be holistic, look at the long view, recognize that there are financial and ecological and health instabilities in the systems and design for an economy that is thriving, it's regenerative, it's distributive, it respects its place in the rest of the living world, it takes a long view. That is how we're going to save ourselves from always ricocheting from one crisis to another and leaving people extraordinarily exposed and vulnerable. Kate, when you were talking about Amsterdam before you first went there, you said that there was sort of a clash between the transformationalists, and I'm trying to remember the word you used, I think you said the the, the status quo or the, the, the traditionalists or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the world that you're describing is truly transformed, right? It's a, it's, it's a long way away from where we are today. 
there is a moment in time now, it seems, where because we have discovered the ability to magic into existence gargantuan sums of money to solve a very real crisis or to get us through a very real crisis that uh, actually some of those conventions have simply fallen by the wayside. And that is certainly true in the government that I'm a part of, um, that the rules that we were living in just vanished some months ago uh, because the context was so radically different that the set of rules that we had designed just don't, just aren't relevant. Um, Given the scale of what you're talking about, you strike me as a very hopeful person. Is that true? Well, to be like resilience, hope can mean many things. I'm definitely not here for hope with its fingers crossed. Oh, I hope we'll get through this. I hope this will come out okay because that ain't going to happen. But if it's hope with its sleeves rolled up, I guess I'm on that team. Sometimes people say to me, oh, you're not, you know, such an optimist. And I say, I'm not an optimist because again, there's a danger that people are optimistic and say, oh, you know, we'll solve this. We've solved, we've got technology. We've solved things before. We'll sort climate change. We'll sort this. No, don't sit back and expect that it's going to happen. It won't. And don't be a pessimist and give up because it's too hard or too late or too expensive or we're too many, too difficult because you make it so by even believing that. So lean in and be an activator, be active in all the networks that you can be active with and get involved. I mean, all the research shows that the people who feel the most hope, the most, the most energy, the most possibility are those who are involved. They're not those who are sitting back and watching because we know actually a lot of our satisfaction in life comes from having purpose and having agency. One thing that gives me hope is the rise of community. So you said right at the beginning, our economies have collapsed. And yes, our market economies have collapsed and the state has stepped in. So let's remember the economy isn't just the market, it's also the state and it's the household and it's the commons. So where markets have collapsed or rather they've been shut down, they've been forcibly shut down in many countries. The state has massively stepped in. The household has hugely stepped up. I'm, I'm homeschooling my kids for two hours a day and my partner is doing the same. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm never stopping, but the community has hugely stepped up. And I live on a street in Oxford, to be quite honest. We never had, we never had a community before. We never connected. I didn't really know my neighbors more than two doors either side. And I've always felt bereft because that feels incredibly sad. Well, at the start of this crisis in my street, like many, many other streets, people went round with a leaflet. We went, we gave emails, we gave phone numbers, we created a WhatsApp group or a text messaging group. And suddenly I, I've never seen my neighbor's faces, but they've given me starter for making sourdough. I've passed on toys and books to their kids. People are passing around seedlings and potting herbs and just reassuring messages. So we've got community and that's the economy. And that gives me hope. And of course, we can't survive on community alone because so much of our economic interaction is based in market exchange, is based in buying and selling things. And we need all of these. I, I wouldn't want to live in a society that didn't have a market and didn't have state providing central public services, that didn't have households and that didn't have community. And again, if there's one thing this crisis has made visible is that when the market shut down, wow, the state can step up and solve things that the market was never going to solve. Wow, households step up and it's actually very tough. And it, in, in, in some vulnerable households, it's intolerable. 
But wow, communities step up too and feel purpose and feel connected. And people in surveys say, there are things about this lockdown I don't want to lose. And it's connection with each other. So as we create economic renewal, let's do it in ways that respect community and that hold community and that strengthen community and rebalance all of the different forms of market and, and the role of the government in paying people a decent wage for the most essential jobs. Yes, let's be for that because now we've seen first have evidence of why it's necessary. And then let's look at marketed goods. Which ones actually belong in the last century and perhaps it's time to say goodnight? And which ones massively need to ramp up? And how can we do that? And let's renew our economies by creating jobs in those sectors. There's so much work to be done. Capital is a means of getting things started again. That's what money is. It's a, it's a means of creating exchange and relationships. So let's create new relationships in the parts of our economies that we already know our grandchildren are begging us to do. Kate Raworth, that uh, is an incredible note to finish on. Thank you so much for your time uh, and for the generosity of spirit that you have uh, given in talking with us today. Really well, thank you. It. Thank you so much for being the kind of politician who has that open curiosity and is asking very deep questions um, in a way that makes it makes us vulnerable and makes us learn. And I really admire that. No, no, uh, no member of the cabinet in the UK has asked to have this conversation with me, surprisingly. So I'm really glad for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to Kate for joining me. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Next week, I'll be speaking with Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England. See you then. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.